Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamath, coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. And I'm Rahul Demania from Cleveland Clinic Children's Hospital. And we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things MedEd in the PICU. PICU Doc on Call focuses on interesting PICU cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. So let's get into our episode. Welcome to our episode of a four-year-old boy with the rash and metabolic acidosis. Here's the case presented by Rahul. A four-year-old boy, previously healthy, is admitted to the PICU, presenting with chief complaints of hypotension, fatigue, and a rash. Two days before admission, the child began showing signs of decreased appetite and fever. His mother observed a diffuse red rash on his trunk and mentioned that his tongue resembled the color of a red popsicle. Additionally, she noted increased effort in his breathing. Pertinently, the child recently had contact with an uncle who tested positive for COVID-19. Given the concerning respiratory symptoms, the mother decided to bring him to the emergency department. Upon evaluation in the emergency department, he was found to be hypotensive, tachycardic, and tachypnic with a pulse oximetry reading of 88% on two liters nasal cannula. The physical exam revealed swollen red lips, a widespread erythematous rash, decreased perfusion to the extremities, and hepatomegaly. The child was immediately supported with the high-flow nasal cannula delivering 12 liters at 45% oxygen and received resuscitation with two small boluses of 10 ml per kilo of crystalloid solution. Despite these measures, he continued to show signs of hypotension and decreased perfusion, and talks of transferring to the PICU were begun. The patient was started on a continuous infusion of epinephrine, and now the team is actively discussing potential escalation of care and the need for additional vascular access. An initial ABG sample on arrival showed a pH of 7.22, CO2 of 34, PO2 of 68, and a base deficit of minus 6. The whole blood lactate level was elevated at 4.5. So to summarize key elements from this case, this patient has signs of systemic inflammation as manifested by fatigue rash, strawberry tongue, and fever, hypotension, tachypnea, hypoxemia, and hepatomegaly concerning for increased central venous pressures, metabolic acidosis. These features, along with recent COVID exposure, bring up the concern for multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children or MISC. He has presentation of cardiogenic shock and signs of decreased oxygen delivery, both clinically and on his labs. Specifically, this patient has a metabolic acidosis, secondary to lactic acidosis, which is the topic of discussion today. Pradeep, I'm very excited to talk about this interesting topic. And just to get us started, this episode will be organized in the following manner. First, we will start by defining lactic acidosis and reviewing key physiologic aspects. Second, we will understand the various types of lactic acidosis. And then Pradeep, we'll go into management. We'll talk a little bit about the role of bicarbonate therapy. So before we get started, I want to integrate a short multiple choice board question. And this goes back to biochemistry. So bear with me here. 
A patient in septic shock is noted to have an elevation in lactic acid. Which of the following mechanisms best describes the biochemical process which may underlie this patient's laboratory findings? A. Overactivation of TCA cycle. B. Conversion of pyruvate to lactate. C. High NAD to NADH ratio. Or D. Mitochondrial conversion of alanine to lactate. Rahul, this is an excellent question. And the correct answer is B, conversion of pyruvate to lactate. The biochemistry of lactate generation and metabolism is important in understanding the pathogenesis of lactic acidosis. The terminal product in glycolysis is pyruvate. In times of energy production, this pyruvate needs to be converted to acetyl-CoA to enter the TCA cycle, which generates NADH. The reduced NADH subsequently undergoes aerobic respiration to be converted to ATP in the electron transport chain. During times of shock, there is decreased aerobic respiration. Thus, there is accumulation of NADH, which then affects glycolysis by shifting pyruvate to lactic acid. The enzyme which converts this is called lactate dehydrogenase. So Rahul, what is the definition of lactic acidosis? Pradeep, that was a great question explanation. So, you know, going into a little bit of lactic acidosis, I think it's very important for you to really look at the units at your institution. But in general, hyperlactatemia is defined as an arterial lactate level of greater than 2 millimoles per liter and a pH that is less than 7.35. Further, a plasma lactate concentration that exceeds 4 millimoles per liter generally defines lactic acidosis, even among patients without a low pH or systemic acidemia. Now, the increase in lactate production is usually caused by impaired tissue oxygenation, and we saw that in our case. And this is either from two things, decreased oxygen delivery or a defect in mitochondrial utilization. Now, just to summarize, normally, the generation and consumption of lactate are equivalent, so they're in a balance. And this results in a stable concentration of lactate in the blood. It is important to note that we produce, physiologically, we produce 15 to 20 millimoles per kilo of lactic acid per day. Now, most is derived from glucose metabolism via the glycolytic pathway. About 80% of lactic acid is primarily oxidized to carbon dioxide and water, and 20% is used to generate glucose. Utilization of lactic acid primarily occurs in the liver, but kidneys, heart, and other tissues also participate. And I think this is so important because whenever you have liver dysfunction, you always think about the accumulation of lactate along with any renal failure that you have. But going back to the physiology, the delivery of this lactic acid to the liver and then the conversion back to glucose, that's called the Cori cycle. And I think this is a very important biochemical pathway that we have to incorporate along with glycolysis, which we just talked about. So as we have presented shock in our case and really reviewed the pathophysiology of lactic acidosis, let's go ahead and transition and review the various types of lactic acidosis. All right, so here's the big picture. We have type A, type B, and type D. 
Type A, which is related to impaired oxygen delivery. This is where tissue hypoxia is present. Type B, which is related to impaired oxygen utilization. This is where tissue hypoxia isn't really present. And type D, that is related to bacterial overgrowth. And now what we're going to do is break down each of them individually. All right, go ahead, Pradeep. So Rahul, the type A lactic acidosis is due to tissue hypoperfusion resulting either from hypovolemia, cardiac failure, sepsis, or cardiopulmonary arrest. At the bedside in the PICU, you will be clinically assessing these patients for impaired oxygen delivery. These children will likely have cool, clammy extremities with exception of the flushed hyperemic skin of early septic shock, oligoanuria, impaired mental status, tachypnea, and a reduction in systemic blood pressure, the degree of which may be minimized by marked vasoconstriction. One of the frequent cause for confusion in the PICU is whether we need to send patients' blood sample to the central lab or can it be analyzed at the bedside using a point-of-care testing cartridge-based analyzer such as an ISTED. Can you shed some light on this? Absolutely, Pradeep. This was a question uh, that was frequently brought up even when I was in uh, fellowship. And to go into this a little bit more, a publication in 2018 in the Journal of Clinical Biochemistry reported that whatever the methodology is used, lactate values are comparable and transferable between point-of-care cartridge-based testing and central laboratory-based analyzers. So I think to answer your question, you could use both. Additionally, arterial lactate and venous lactate levels were strongly correlated in the condition of sepsis or septic shock. And so this really allows for us to obtain a level, whichever uh, way in the moment seems most practical. Consequently, venous lactate may be used in substitution for arterial lactate. And in sepsis, trending should be generally applied rather than using a single method or specimen type. I would say that it would be best to compare apples to apples, so not interchanging methods of specimen types is a very practical management point. And remember that lactate values are very sensitive and change with time, the method of measurement, whether it's serum versus whole blood, etc. So really try to make sure that you are interpreting consistent values. And the most important thing is to make sure that you trend the lactate rather than one focal point in time. All right, Pradeep. So let's go ahead and go into another question. Do you mind commenting on the role of lactate measurement in pediatric sepsis? Because, you know, I just read the 2020 pediatric sepsis guidelines a few months back. And how can we incorporate this article into our whole conceptualization of lactic acidosis? That's an excellent question. And I highly encourage all PQ fellows to go through this pediatric sepsis guidelines by Scott Weiss et al. And they're available for free on PCCM Journal. Now, blood lactate levels provide a valuable indirect marker of tissue hypoperfusion. The surviving sepsis guidelines by Weiss et al. in PCCM 2020 were unable to issue a recommendation about using blood lactate values to stratify children with suspected septic shock or other sepsis-associated organ dysfunction into low versus high risk of having septic shock or sepsis. 
What that means is they were unable to categorize kids either as having a low risk or high risk of having septic shock or sepsis. Now, in children, several observational studies have demonstrated an association of elevated blood lactate levels with adverse outcomes in septic shock. In one PQ study uh, that was published in Intensive Care Med in 2017, uh, using data from CORE and ANSYS pediatric study group uh, from Australia and New Zealand, the mortality rate for children with hypotension requiring vasopressors with a lactate greater than 2 millimoles per liter was 32% compared with 16% if the lactate was less than or equal to 2 millimoles per liter. Although blood lactate may be affected by conditions of the blood draw, example use of a tourniquet, both venous and arterial lactate measurements obtained have been shown to be independently associated with mortality in children. Now, only one pediatric observational study by Scott H.F. et al. published in JAMA Pediatrics in 2017 of lactate-guided resuscitation in which they studied about 77 children with sepsis in the ED. Their authors reported that lactate normalization was associated with a decreased risk of persistent organ dysfunction. Although there are multiple adult studies on sepsis, including six randomized control trials, which showed significant reduction in mortality in patients with lactate monitoring to guide resuscitation, there was only one pediatric study to go by that was this observational study. However, lactate levels should therefore be interpreted as a part of a more comprehensive assessment of clinical status and perfusion. The sepsis guidelines suggest that blood lactate levels be used to help guide resuscitation of children with established septic shock or sepsis-associated organ dysfunction. So I think what we need to be careful about is rather than just follow lactate as a number, we have to make a comprehensive assessment of the clinical status and perfusion and take all the factors into account before making decisions just based on lactate. That's an excellent point, Pradeep. And I'm so glad that you were able to really summarize a lot of these articles. For me, some of the takeaways were that blood lactate level of two and understanding that whenever you have a patient trending that lactate and if the lactate is getting better and the patient clinically is improving, I think that that also gives us an idea of persistent organ dysfunction and whether uh, we are improving in that sphere or not. I think when we look at all of our episodes, the episode that really integrates well with today's episode is episode 32. If you want to check it out, it's called Oxygen Content and Delivery, and I think it integrates very well with the lactic acidosis uh, discussion. We also have a acid-based disorder episode, episode 56, and we'll put this in the show notes on picku.oncall.org as well. Thanks, Raul. That's, that's great information. In short, Rahul, what are some of the relevant states in the PQ which can cause increased oxygen demand, which is the, basically the important framework for type A lactic acidosis that you pointed out earlier? Absolutely. So, you know, when we think about type A lactic acidosis, I would consider the central nervous system and really look at not only oxygen delivery, but oxygen consumption. And things that can increase oxygen consumption include under sedation, pain, fever, shivering. And I think from a respiratory standpoint, increased work of breathing. And 
these two points are very important because whenever we talk about oxygen delivery, it's always important to understand the other side of the equation of what we can practically do is sedating these patients, making sure we control their temperature, and also providing them respiratory support. So I think we gave our due diligence to type A lactic acidosis. Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about type B lactic acidosis. Pradeep, how do we conceptualize this? So Rahul, the main problem in a type B lactic acidosis as opposed to type A lactic acidosis is the impaired oxygen utilization. Now, we can have impaired oxygen utilization due to drugs or toxins which impair mitochondrial function, have an impairment in lactic clearance, or have an underlying infection which can decrease oxygen utilization. Now, some of the most common offending agents which can cause type B lactic acidosis include, uh, you know, propofol, such as in propofol infusion syndrome or PRIS, uh, as well as beta adrenergic agents. Now, lactic acidosis has been frequently reported in uh, patients with severe bronchospasm who are treated with high-dose inhaled beta agonists. Although the mechanism is not proven, lactic acidosis in such patients may be due to adrenergic-induced glycolysis and lipolysis, which increase pyruvate, and free fatty acid concentrations, respectively. Now, free fatty acids can inhibit pyruvate dehydrogenase and thereby impair mitochondrial pyruvate uptake. If pyruvate accumulates, it can be converted to lactate, giving rise to lactic acidosis. I would also like to highlight inherited disorders in pediatric population, such as the mitochondrial encephalomyopathy with lactic acidosis and stroke-like episodes, you know, short form as a MELAS syndrome, which impairs mitochondrial DNA and thus can cause type B lactic acidosis due to impaired uh, pyruvate utilization. And uh, one thing I forgot under drugs, a classic drug that can actually end up giving lactic acidosis is metformin, which is now increasingly used for type 2 diabetes, even in teenagers. So we may see a kid with lactic acidosis I think it's important to ask about metformin use. That's an excellent point, Pradeep. And, you know, just to conceptualize, type B lactic acidosis, we are going to be talking about impaired oxygen utilization. And I love that point about uh, considering medications. So, Pradeep, I do want to highlight this concept of lactic acid washout. And this has been described as you have a child in front of you, there's a rising level of arterial blood lactate. But you've really tackled adequate oxygen delivery in this patient. But, you know, you still see the lactic acid levels rising. And when we think about lactic acid washout, do you mind telling us when do we see this phenomena? And what are these uh, clinical pearls that you have regarding lactic acid washout? Rahul, this is, again, a great question. I would take into account the full picture in a patient who has a rising lactic acid and evidence of optimal oxygen delivery and consumption. The lactic acid washout phenomena may be due to impaired clearance of lactic acid in the microcirculation, the liver, and the kidney. Now, considering serial exams as well as lab surrogates of oxygen delivery and consumption are important uh, to obtain prior to establishing the thought process of lactic washout. At time, subtle elevations in lactic acid may be secondary to bowel ischemia, compartment syndrome, or toxin-mediated disease. Correlating your trends in lactates with blood gas measurements, clinical exams, mixed venous oxygen saturations, and using NEARS are practical 
bedside tools to kind of really evaluate about lactic acid washout phenomena. Now, studies have looked at the impact of lactate clearance on early outcomes in pediatric ECMO patients, especially in the post-operative pediatric congenital heart population, trending serum lactate in the first 24 hours post-ECMO initiation, and assessing lactic acid clearance may play a role in assessing mortality. An ECMO study from Germany revealed an increase in lactic acid of 43% at six hours on VA ECMO as a cutoff point, which predicted mortality. Great point, Pradeep. And it definitely tells us the importance of when patients are on VA ECMO to get those trends in lactic measurements. All right. So let's go ahead and close this episode by highlighting management. Pradeep, let's say we have type A lactic acidosis. Besides the initial resuscitation measures, do you mind talking a little bit about exogenous bicarb therapy? Rahul, before we talk about bicarb administration, I think some general principles in the management of a patient with hyperlactatemia should include improving microcirculation, goal-directed management of sepsis, use of pressors, mildenone may be required. The next step would be to initiate cause-specific measures targeting causes of high lactate, treat sepsis, manage arrhythmias, heart failure therapy or mechanical support for a failing heart, uh, surgery for trauma, uh, tissue ischemia or toxic megacolon, renal replacement for toxin removal or removal of toxic drugs, discontinuation of drugs such as uh, metformin, which can g- give rise to lactic acidosis may be required. Now, the role of exogenous bicarb therapy in patients with lactic acidosis, I'm going to start by saying that it is very controversial. Now, most experts believe that it is appropriate to use bicarbonate in acutely ill patients with profound lactic acidosis that had generated an arterial pH less than 7.1 and a serum bicarb of less than 6 milliequivalents or less. Now, the value of bicarbonate therapy in reducing mortality or improving hemodynamics remains unproven. But I think most intensivists, if the patient has acidemia, are going to use some sort of bicarbonate, either in the maintenance fluid or as a bolus to, quote unquote, help the presses work better. So, Rahul, why do you think physiologically this would be recommended? Like, you know, where does this question of giving bicarb come from? Absolutely. And I I think it just goes back to the overall biological concept of homeostasis. So in severe acidemia, the myocardium is unhappy, so to say. And remember that severe acidemia may produce hemodynamic instability as a result of reduced LV contractility, arterial vasodilation, and impaired responsiveness to catecholamines, which you mentioned in your last point. What is very important in the management of lactic acidosis is that the primary therapy is to reverse the underlying disease. This is true for many conditions, but especially for lactic acidosis. You want to understand what is causing your lactic acidosis because that will help you identify where you can optimize delivery or reduce consumption. In our index case, The patient had cardiogenic failure secondary to MISC. And I think that really understanding how to optimize myocardial function is important. 
And so, you know, just to summarize, the goal of bicarbonate therapy in patients with lactic acidosis and severe acidemia is to maintain the arterial pH above, in general, 7.1 until the primary process causing the metabolic acidosis can be reversed. Thresholds of acidosis is very patient-specific. For example, the myocardium of a patient with established congenital heart disease or post-operative from cardiac surgery may not tolerate profound acidosis, and you may want to be aggressive at, you know, a pH of 7.3, 7.2, etc. I also think just as a practical point, if you have refractory lactic acidosis, and while you are working on delivery and consumption, you may want to also buffer fluids and add sodium acetate or bicarb just to uh, optimize role of your pressors, etc. And yes, Rahul, I also want to highlight uh, that rapid infusions of sodium bicarbonate may actually increase the partial pressure of carbon dioxide, i.e. the PCO2, due to carbonic anhydrase. That is especially true in patients with chronic respiratory acidosis, secondary to, say, for example, BPD. Now, bicarbonate in some studies has been shown to paradoxically accelerate the production of lactate, lower ionized calcium, expand the extracellular space, and raise the serum sodium concentration. These are all important values to trend with repeated or prolonged bicarbonate therapy. But I think uh, what I want to mention is giving bicarb or not giving bicarb remains very controversial uh, still in our PQ world. So people listening to this should proceed with caution. Absolutely, Pradeep. So, you know, another common question asked in the PQ is why using lactated ringers for resuscitation does not result in lactic acidosis. And the reason is very interesting, and that is that the content of Ringer's lactate is sodium lactate, which is a buffered solution. It is a compensatory base, so to say, of lactic acid. And so administration of Ringer's lactate will cause an excess of lactate, which will be utilized for energy production. And hopefully, if you have intact uh, liver and kidney function, you can then convert that lactate into pyruvate, uh, et cetera. So we talked a lot today about lactic acid, and I want to just give you a few take-home points. Number one, lactic acid, it's the most common cause of metabolic acidosis in the pediatric ICU. Remember, it's an anion gap metabolic acidosis, and usually we're talking about impaired tissue oxygenation. An increase in the anion gap can mirror the blood lactate level but a close relationship may not always be found. So just make sure that you are not only getting your electrolytes to calculate the anion gap, but also get a arterial or venous lactate sample. Type A lactic acidosis, it's associated with impaired tissue oxygenation. Type B lactic acidosis occurs in patients without systemic hypoperfusion. You can think about it as the mitochondria are not able to either process the lactic acid or you are having impaired oxygen utilization. Finally, lactic acid is cleared by the liver and kidney. And that's why in some clinical circumstances, trending the clearance in lactate, that whole concept of lactic acid washout may be beneficial. All right, Pradeep. Thanks so much for yet another great episode. So this concludes our episode on lactic acidosis. We hope you found a value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our doc on call management cards. 
PQ Talk on Call is co-hosted by me Pradeep Kamath and my co-host Dr. Rahul Dimenia. Please stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you.